Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. So there was a big dust up in uh, Dane County Circuit Court earlier this week having to do with a hearing that involved uh, former Supreme Court Justice uh, Michael Gableman. And as you probably know, he has been tasked to conduct an investigation of sorts um, that has been an ongoing thing. And there have been some uh, tangential lawsuits uh, regarding open records and release of information that's part of that investigation. And there was a hearing, uh, as I said earlier this week, in circuit court. And a couple of interesting things happened. Um, first of all, uh, Gableman was subpoenaed to this hearing, and he did show up. And when he took the stand, he basically refused to answer questions and was, in fact, uh, belligerent to the judge. And in spite of the fact that he had been lawfully subpoenaed and, and required to attend, um, certain questions relating to this open records issue, he um, basically was defiant and, uh, for lack of a better term, extremely rude in the process. Um, so then there, there was a, uh, the interesting thing about it is that you may not know this, but uh, all of the courtrooms throughout Wisconsin have now been equipped with these digital recording systems. And this is part of the trend that's been going towards uh, having court reporters uh, not necessarily type, you know, stenographically in conjunction with things that are happening live, but rather there is a recording that at some later point, a court reporter can then make a transcript. And this was a move that got put into place really shortly before COVID took off, but it was a statewide initiative that uh, took hold, you know, not too long ago. And so there's signs all over the place. If you go into a courtroom that says, hey, be aware that things are being recorded and, and there are microphones that are catching everything that you're saying, even if you're not on the record. Okay. So... You know, we had a hot mic incident, <laughs> which, you know, um, Gableman was talking to his lawyer and basically was talking about both the judge and the opposing counsel in this case in extremely derogatory terms and basically um, <laughs> complaining about the whole process and um, saying how back when he was a judge, he would never have handled things this way. And this is all a big, you know, thing for the judge to try and uh, grab some power and show, exert his authority over the situation. And that the prosecutor was uh, not prosecutor, but the opposing counsel was um, just basically playing to the judge and a bunch of other things that were would have been inappropriate to say on the record, and they, they weren't on the record. And it's interesting because the uh, Gableman's lawyer says, hey, don't forget, you know, there's this microphone, and he, and he ends up saying, I don't care. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't mind what, you know, people hear about this. I, it's nothing I wouldn't say out loud, which is kind of odd because he was saying things that were definitely not um, appropriate. So <laughs> the judge... And not because of the hot mic incident, by the way. It was because of what Gableman said on the stand and how he refused to cooperate with the process and basically um, 
you know, uh, resisted his own participation. He was found in contempt and uh, also ordered to pay a fine of $2,000 for every day that he doesn't comply with an order to produce these records. And then further, because of his uh, conduct on the stand, uh, Judge Remington in Dane County has referred him to the Office of Lawyer Regulation for uh, discipline. Uh, so when that happens, they open an investigation, they do a bunch of looking around and seeing what happened, and this one will be easy because it's all in the record, and determine whether or not there's some sort of uh, discipline from the Supreme Court, which is ironic because Gableman used to be on the Supreme Court. Hmm. But the, the other thing that's uh, noteworthy about this whole situation is that when Gableman ran for Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin, he is the guy that set the precedent for um, basically dishonest advertising. Dishonest advertising. Um, and what I mean by that is he had an ad campaign that um, he was running against incumbent Justice uh, Lewis Butler. And, you know, of course, this was several years ago. And prior to that, um, ad campaigns for a nonpartisan office tended to focus on one's um, strengths and not so much an attack on uh, another person's credentials or a commentary on their um, ability to judge cases and so forth. But what Gableman did is that he, he put out an ad that was flat out false. It claimed something that uh, he and the people that made the ad knew to be strictly untrue. And <clears throat> essentially what it said was that Lewis Butler, back when he was a public defender, which, you know, there was a pejorative connotation to that um, in and of itself. But the, the fact was that he, he had, in fact, uh, represented somebody who was accused of a, a sex offense. And that person did end up getting convicted and did go to prison. Um, later on, that person was released and then committed another offense. And, and at that point in the process, it was very clear, everyone knew, it's on the record, that Lewis Butler didn't participate on that case at that point. But the Gableman ad said falsely that um, there's been uh, a history of this person, you know, uh, Judge Butler, Justice Butler, um, freeing sex offenders and putting them back on the street and how he worked hard to make this guy go back out in public so he could reoffend, which was just plain false. So he gets called out on it, and there's an investigation like, how, how can you do this in an ad? His defense was free speech. I can say whatever I want. It doesn't even have to be true because free speech. You know, free speech includes lies. And... Um, you know, that was really the beginning of what we saw uh, being a trend where uh, political ads 
don't have to be accurate at all. Um, and they can claim false things. Interestingly enough, um, you know, the rules that relate to lawyer conduct also apply, would apply in that situation. And they looked at whether or not um, including false information, know, knowingly including false information in a po uh, political ad as such is a violation of the ethics rules. And the determination was, well, yes and no. I mean, you're not supposed to do that. But on the other hand, if it's something that is, uh, you know, political speech and if it's an opinion, you know, type thing, then uh, I suppose you get a pass. And, and the rationale behind not interfering with that kind of thing is that the voting public should be able to figure out on their own that, um, you know, if something is not uh, correct or accurate, you know, that the person making the claim would lose credibility and therefore wouldn't have to, you, you know, they're not going to get any gain by making a false claim like that. So we all know that's not true, right? So interestingly, someone who has the past pattern and practice of not giving a hoot about the truth <laughs> um, now finds himself in hot water for um, obstructive and uh, resistant conduct in court. And frankly, the, the hot mic conversation consisted of him talking about how, you know, he, he's so much better than everybody else and smarter and knows what he's doing and nobody else does. And that this is all a big you know, political maneuver that's just trying to make him look bad. And the dude couldn't follow the simple rules, which is, you know, say what you're supposed to say when you're asked questions by a judge on the stand and don't interfere with the legitimate um, judicial process. Just, just mind boggling. So time to take a break and we will be back right after these messages. So an interesting case from the uh, Court of Appeals came out earlier this week um, that has to do with, you guessed it, drunk driving, and a ruling that kind of surprised a lot of people. And I need to give you a little bit of background here so you understand. Um, this was a case where uh, in a particular county, uh, and some counties do this, it's not universal, but in this particular county, when they get a warrant for someone's blood, they have to fill out an affidavit. And normally, let's say they were searching a house for contraband, or let's say they wanted to search a vehicle or something like that, and they needed to establish probable cause. Well, that's done one of two ways. One is that they can telephonically get the judge on the line, and then there's a recording process whereby... There's a quick little hearing where someone from the district attorney's office um, presents live testimony to the judge. And then if the judge approves the warrant, then that's done telephonically. But the other way of doing it is by affidavit. And to save time, as it were, some counties have developed this sort of checklist approach when it comes to um, getting getting blood from a person who is accused of drunk driving. And it's usually, you know, in the middle of the night. And they've done this as kind of a time-saving uh, maneuver. 
And the form is sort of a checklist. Like the cop will say, I observed so-and-so driving the vehicle at such and such location. I administered the following field sobriety tests and you check them, the horizontal gaze and stagnus test, the walk and turn test, the one leg stand test. And, you know, they basically, it's designed in such a way so that it could be done very quickly just by checking a bunch of boxes. Well, the, the form in this case talks about where the officer observed um, the vehicle being operated. And the way that drunk driving law works is that uh, one of the things that makes it against the law is if the person is operating a vehicle on a public highway, which includes not just highways, but anywhere that cars are designed to be driven that are open to the public and are not private property. So technically, one's driveway is not included in that definition. So someone can get uh, schnockered uh, all they want, go in the car that's in their driveway, get in the car, and then as long as they don't go anywhere or do anything in that vehicle, in other words, not leaving the driveway, then there's no crime that's been committed. Um, now, that doesn't hold true if, uh, and a lot of people believe this, I get this question a lot from clients that come in, uh, it's not a safe harbor after you've already been driving on a roadway. You can't like duck into your um, driveway and then say, ha ha, you can't get me now because I'm in my driveway. It doesn't work that way because the operating of the vehicle that led up to going in the driveway was something that, um, you know, constituted the offense. So it's not like, you know, home base where you, you, you touch, <laughs> you know, you're safe if you make it home. Not true. But technically it is true that if the vehicle never went on the roadway and the operator of the vehicle is simply on the, you know in their own driveway in their car and impaired not a, not an offense i mean that hardly ever happens but anyway so this affidavit that gets this checklist affidavit gets filled out the way that it's structured is such that it says um the officer observed the vehicle being operated at blank so it says at you know and the idea is it would be a particular location and you can imagine that in this scenario, when the officer observed the vehicle uh, in the driveway, and that was all the only observation that the officer made was that the vehicle was in the driveway, that he filled in, uh, I observed the vehicle being operated at blank. He filled in, uh, you know, suspect's driveway. So it's the use of the word at, which was pre-printed on the form, that comes into play here. Because there was a challenge to that affidavit as to whether or not it established probable cause. Because if one is operating their vehicle in their driveway, and that's what the officer observed, and there's no other evidence of the fact that it had been operated at a previous point in time, supposedly while the person was impaired, that does not equate to probable cause. It simply doesn't. But the problem is the way the form was structured is that it doesn't account for that particular scenario. And because it used the word at, A-T, at, um, 
you know, normally you'd fill in, you know, the corner of Fifth and Main or something like that. The officer said, suspect's driveway. So the, the challenge, which was a good challenge, was that that conduct is not against the law as it's written in the affidavit. And the warrant should not have been granted. Very good argument. And uh, the prosecutors in the case actually conceded that that is a correct argument. However, they argued that uh, the judge had the authority to sort of read into or make inferences based on um, the overall circumstances. And that just because that language appears to say that the person was not operating in a way that would have been against the law, that you know, a judge is entitled to sort of guess around the edges. Interestingly, um, <laughs> that's the court found, believed that argument and said, yeah, well, you know, this is a matter of, um, you know, an inartfully drafted thing. It would have been better if the officer had been more specific about what he observed. And by, by the way, there was evidence that the vehicle had been traveling on a roadway prior to being in the driveway. That is the truth. That is what happened. But it was not contained in the affidavit. So uh, it's in, in, in an amazing feat of uh, mental gymnastics here. The court goes on to explain how uh, it is, you know, a, a judge can apply um inferences and can assume things which is contrary to the law when it relates to granting a warrant and remember a warrant is is an exception to the general rule that there can't be a search you have to have a warrant that's supported by probable cause that's a very very important uh, component of the fourth amendment to the constitution it's critical and it has to be very precise and you know before a search is conducted it has to be properly presented and objectively analyzed um, without reading things into it that aren't stated that's been the law forever i mean well at least as long as we've been a country and <laughs> so really fascinating process here whereby um you know the court goes through this process of saying it was all okay, even though the state, even though the prosecutors admitted that it was an error, um, they said, hey, we still, you know, cut cut the cops some slack here because the form itself um, was designed in such a way that it didn't account for this situation. Um, and by the way, the officer had not observed any other driving. There was evidence based on a call that had come in that there was a vehicle that appeared to be... Um, being driven in a manner that was not, you know, appropriate or something like that. But the officer didn't see that. So this this entry on the warrant itself basically said he sees the vehicle being operated at the person's driveway. So when the court's looking at that, they're like, well, that could mean near the driveway. It didn't say in the driveway. It didn't say on the driveway. It said at the driveway, which could mean, you know, on the road close to the driveway or a block away or whatever. So this, this struggle where they're attempting very, very hard and successfully, by the way, to justify this search warrant because of the use of the word at in this pre-printed form. 
if they had gone through the process of not having a checklist and the officer could actually explain all the stuff instead of trying to make it conform to someone else's idea of how to make this expedient and uh, you know not make them work too hard to get the warrant then this problem would not have existed but as you see in these situations they 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 you know and trust me nobody likes the fact that they have to get warrants nowadays that's based on a United States Supreme Court case that came out a few years ago uh, called McNeely and that requires that when someone uh, refuses a blood test request that they have to get a warrant even if it's in the middle of the night and even if they got to wake a judge up uh, that's just the law so I think there's a bit of um, you know resentment that that is the law and they they make these forms you know supposedly easy to fill out is the idea all right we'll be right back so just a little follow-up on what we were talking about before the break um this scenario where an officer wants to get a driver's blood to test and see what's in it you know like alcohol or drugs i suppose and um there's a process whereby an officer reads a form it's called the informing the accused form and the officer will read it it's about five paragraphs long it has a bunch of confusing stuff in there and based on the person's answer they either proceed with taking the person to the hospital to get their blood um, if they say yes or they say no as we were just discussing uh, the officer then will get a warrant for uh, a search of the person's blood now there's a very long history behind this um, procedure and it's it's kind of interesting to talk about because it goes back to a case from 1966 called Schmerber versus California and that was a United States Supreme Court case that dealt with what we call exigent circumstances and if you're a fan of the Fourth Amendment <laughs> and you follow all the intricate ways in which it's been analyzed over the years, you know, you start with the basic rule under the Fourth Amendment that no, uh, no search may be conducted without a warrant and no warrant shall issue unless it's based on probable cause. So those words have um, been the subject of so much litigation over the course of hundreds of years it's it's just fascinating how the ins and outs of this this whole process that is based on a very very brief mention of what a search is all about of course when the bill of rights was drafted um they were talking about you know someone's house or something like that and uh, whether the government could barge in and just you know do a shakedown and look for stuff and that was um not consistent with our American values that were being created at the time to not have the government uh, interfere with our daily lives, our, our right to go about our business freely and not have the government act like a state of martial law. So the over the years, um, exceptions have been developed to this warrant requirement and the probable cause aspect of the warrant requirement. And one of them that was, um, has been, still is, a prominent exception uh, when 
the police have an argument that they cannot take the time to actually get a warrant issued by a magistrate or judge. And that's what we call exigencies. So when it's something that is like, we got to do it right now, there's no time, we have to hurry. And the idea, you know, think about the classic example, someone's fleeing the scene and of a crime and they, you know, they get to their house and they go in and they lock the door and, you know, the police are then uh, chasing this person to apprehend them. Uh, and they enter the, uh, the premises uh, without a warrant because it's an emergency. Exigency means emergency. That's what it means. So this case in 1966 dealt with the fact that at that time, they were starting to, throughout the United States, uh, enact programs in, in all of the states, whereby there would be some actual testing of a person's blood or breath uh, in order to determine what an alcohol concentration was. And of course, prior to that, it was kind of happenstance. Uh, you know, an officer would say, well, he sure seemed like he was drunk. Uh, you know, I, I had him recite the alphabet backwards and he got it all wrong. Or, you know, just various different ways where an officer in the field would, would do things to form an opinion. And this was designed as a way to, number one, uh, make it make the roads safer because there could be some kind of objective measure of a person's legal limits. So the establishment of legal limits throughout the country was happening um, at this time. And it became um, much more in vogue for officers to want to take someone's blood. Now, back then, um, it was very common uh, in, in various states that an officer would actually take blood from a person on the scene, on the side of the road, you know, uh, <laughs> with rubber gloves and a, and a needle. <laughs> and that freaked a lot of people out. But um, anyway, remember how in 1966 uh, warrants were obtained? Well, there would be, you got to think about going to the police station, typing up something in triplicate with your carbon paper, um, typing it all out, then going to the judge's house because there weren't any cell phones, waking him up in the middle of the night and saying, judge, would you please sign this warrant? Meanwhile, this is all taking a very long time, presumably. And there is uh, the risk that the evidence that the officer is seeking is disappearing because the human body processes and eliminates alcohol, right? So there's this language in that Schmerber case that talks about how every single time this scenario occurs, they basically gave blanket authority for the police to not seek a warrant. And again, we're talking about when someone doesn't consent. I'll come back to that in a minute. Because when they don't consent, then there has to be a search that is supported by probable cause. And in that case, the argument would be it's an exigency, a, an emergency. But there's this language that, that has been controversial. What's controversial for many, many years, decades that said uh, when alcohol is in a, the human body, it is in a constant state of dissipation. It is lowering as time goes by because the body processes the alcohol and metabolizes it. 
Okay, so that was the premise upon which this blanket authority in every single drunk driving scenario uh, made it so officers did not need to get a warrant in that situation. Person refused, they'd say, okay, we're taking your blood anyway. Thank you for refusing, but we don't need a warrant. We're going to hold you down if we need to. We're going to jab you with the needle. We're going to get your blood. Because Schmerber said that it's always an exigent circumstance when that happens. Well, we we knew, people knew, doctors knew, smart people knew back in 1966 that that's not true. You can't say that in every situation alcohol is dissipating from a person's system. Those of us that have consumed alcohol in the past know that when you drink alcohol, it doesn't impair you immediately. It has to go through the process of being absorbed into your system, then distributed throughout your body. And then the process of elimination occurs after all that is happening. So given that it's at least 50% as likely that someone's alcohol is rising rather than dissipating when an officer is asking for blood, that language in the Schmerber case just is not, is not true. And it took us until just a few years ago for the U.S. Supreme Court to acknowledge that and point out that that was a, an error in both logic and fact that in every situation there's an automatic exigency. So what the court ruled, and again, this is recently, just a few years ago, is that um, just like any other situation where a warrant should be um, considered, there, there can be exigent circumstances where it is logical and, um, you know, ultimately necessary for an officer to bypass that warrant requirement, but it's not uh, a given. It's not a um, standard automatic practice as it had been in the past. So individualized consideration of the circumstances is what is now required. So throughout the country, this changed police procedure, you know, in a sea change moment where now, all of a sudden, for the first time, officers have to get these warrants when somebody refuses to consent to a chemical test. And trust me, they did not like this. <laughs> it's it's paperwork. It's stuff they got to do. But the re one of the main reasons why uh, that Schmerber ruling was overturned is that things are different now. We have cell phones. We have the ability to do telephonic hearings, we have uh, the process of obtaining a warrant is vastly easier nowadays than it used to be. And, and the court acknowledged that. And this was, you know, thankfully, um, a an acknowledgement of the fact that getting a warrant is what should be the normal course, instead of just calling everything an exigency. And, you know, it was a, an important decision in that regard. Well, we have to take another break, and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. So the wild and wonderful world of warrants <laughs> and how they are granted. Um, so, you know, the case I was talking about is this McNeely decision that came out a few years ago. And basically, the police departments all over the country freaked out that now they got to do all this extra stuff. 
And, um, of course, there have been efforts to lessen the sting of having to do your job <laughs> by the expediency behind these checklist forms. And, you know, anytime there's some effort to, you know, which is funny because McNeely says that it's supposed to be an individualized situation and, you, and an officer is supposed to analyze things based on what they see then and there, you know, which is common sense. That's how it's always supposed to be. You don't, don't just automatically do something because you have a potential argument that there's an exigent circumstance that exists. So what is the response? And this isn't true everywhere, but in this particular county, they come up with a, a form, a checklist form, so that it's not individualized and that it doesn't account for um, the particular nuances of that situation. Obviously a time-saving effort, but also, you know, frankly, um, not very smart. So uh, the the way that all this evolved was such that that's one example of how the court has grappled with um, applying this very firm and um, consistent rule regarding probable cause that supports a warrant. And by the way, it, it doesn't say anywhere in the Constitution that a warrant that a, that a search can occur um, without a warrant. It says no warrant shall, shall issue except upon probable cause. So it, that's what it says. You know, in the very basic foundation that we start with is that there is a warrant that is needed in any type of situation where there's going to be a search. Always, right? So that's where the court has, over the years, come up with all these examples of situations like, well, it says that in the Fourth Amendment. But maybe this is a situation where that that isn't necessary, which is kind of shocking because it's the the exceptions have swallowed the rule um, over the years, and there you know there are things that, uh, for example, when uh, somebody is uh, being searched as a condition of their employment, that's a big exception. Uh, if somebody, if a student's locker is being searched, n no warrant required. When there, as we said before, exigent circumstances or an emergency that happens. There's also, as you've uh, heard me talk about on the show, this community caretaker exception to everything. Where a cop can say, they're just there to help. They're not there to search. But while they're at it, let's do a little searching. Um <laughs> all of which doesn't require a warrant. So, you know, it's kind of, we hear these discussions a lot and you see it every time there's a Supreme Court justice that comes up for confirmation. And the questions that get asked by the Senate, things such as, um, what is your philosophy regarding judicial activism? And the right answer is, I am not a judicial activist. I call balls and strikes. I read the text of the Constitution, and I apply it. Well, th that's great, except that that's not how the court actually behaves. Um, and, and that term judicial activism has been coined as a manner in which to um, identify judges that are accused of bending things in the direction that supports 
a particular conclusion. So as if to say, well, I know the law says that, but what we what makes more sense is that, you know, in order to get from here to there, we need to interpret the law this other way, or we need to add context to it, or we need to look at the background of this particular law, or we can assume that when the legislature said these things, they must have meant this. So that, that's what we mean when we say judicial activism, and it's supposed to be a bad thing. That's a pejorative connotation that um, I will not be a judicial activist. That's what they mean. Don't stray from what the actual letter of the law is. Yet, that has been the function <laughs> of this U.S. Supreme Court for practically it's an, almost its entire history. Um, we could get into a whole constitutional law class here if we had more time, but we don't. And the... Uh, but, you know, the, the role of the court, remembering that this is part of the checks and balances of, of the government. We've got the legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and there's supposed to be three equal parts, you know, that keep the government, um, keep, keep any one branch of the government from having too much power over the other two, you know, is the way it's supposed to work. So if it were true that the role of a Supreme Court justice is simply to call balls and strikes, that wouldn't hold true um, to the overall checks and balances philosophy. And as time went on, the court acknowledged that it's more than just balls and strikes. But, you know, when we have these confirmation hearings, everybody knows that's the right answer. I will respect precedent, I will read the law, I will interpret it very strictly as written and apply it honestly, etc. So, you know, if that were true, we wouldn't have all these crazy exceptions to the warrant requirement that have um, accumulated over the years. You know, there is there aren't cases that go all the way up to the Supreme Court that say, oh, this is a case where the police uh, followed the Fourth Amendment and got the warrant like they were supposed to and did everything properly because it wouldn't have been appealed, right? I mean, if, if they did it exactly like it's supposed to be done, there's no issue. So by not doing it that way, that's how these cases arrive at the appellate level is because there was an effort to not do it the right way because of whatever situation. You know, it, it raises another issue, which is, the spirit behind the Fourth Amendment and, frankly, a lot of the provisions within our Constitution and Bill of Rights are designed to give the government fair warning that if you can't do it a certain way, don't do it at all. Just leave people alone. That's what the spirit behind the Fourth Amendment is. Um, let If you don't have things... Uh, done according to what we Americans hold as a very uh, dear value, that to be left alone by the government so that the government doesn't have the ability to cause you to fear it. You're not supposed to fear the government. You know, a good government that works properly doesn't, you know... Um, engage in in fear tactics well you know we've come a long way since then i think the founders are probably rolling over in their graves if they knew how far this had gone from that original inception but again 
you know, what that, what the fourth amendment means is don't do it unless you do it the right way. Don't search anybody unless you do it exactly this way. And of course, good laws have fewer words, they say. And, you know, the Bill of Rights has, has the force of law. Um, so as a general principle, you know, it's supposed to be overarching. It's supposed to be the most important aspect of how it affects our daily lives. Yet, <laughs> it's almost never uh, followed. Almost never. Um, it's just all these different ways of saying, well, yeah, I know it says that, but the reality is uh, we had to do this because, you know, we just had to, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, as I talked about last week and many other times, you know, when these rights are there, they're there so they can be exercised and so they can be enforced. And it just boggles my mind how I find myself in court time after time after time arguing to a judge that what the police did in a particular situation is inconsistent with this general idea that people are to be left alone and their rights are intact and they can't be taken away. Yet, there's an ongoing effort on a daily basis to take those rights away or bypass them, go around them in some way. So I just wanted to um, conclude by giving a shout out to, uh, I don't know, just lately, a lot of people have been telling me that they enjoy listening to this show and um, they've been long-term listeners. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that. And um, if you find it enjoyable, that's wonderful. If you don't, that's fine too. Um, but, you know, I speak the truth is what I do. That's what I'm here for. So tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.